Do we know what we're talking about? <laughs> Season three. Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. This and this <laughs> is Pod Have Mercy. What up? How are you doing? How's the vacation? Me? Yeah, you. I I haven't been on vacation. I didn't vacation. <laughs> Are we going? Oh, you, do you know what I love about Zach? He sounds just like if you ever if you, your laugh is just like Ricky Gervais. Who I don't know who Ricky Gervais is. That's so good. He doesn't know who Ricky Gervais is. <laughs> His is it's just like Ricky Gervais, right? It is. You go in for a loaf. You're knackered. You've eaten it. Just try to find your way out. <laughs> <laughs> what they say yeah. it's better to be. Well, no, they say. <laughs> <laughs> That's his laugh. That is Zach's laugh. So hopefully we get lots of Zach laughing today. That would be super great. I would love that. Our friend Matt Russell is in Seattle. I don't know if he'll ever make it back from Seattle. I don't think people come back from Seattle, especially if they're from Texas. But uh, anyway, so he's gone visiting with family, which is great. And so Zach Blunt is here. Now, but on social media, you have like 27 different names. I do? I thought. I don't. Like, this is one name. It's like one on everything. Are you not like X Michael cool to the Z? Oh, that's like my Facebook. That's so uh, people. See, so I'll, you're, you're uh, outing me. Uh, so, Look, that's so that people don't find that No, one. so I'm just saying <laughs> you have secret code. Yeah. I, so just so you know, I don't have any secret code Facebook social media. I don't, I'm John Stevens. And on Instagram, I'm the John Stevens. Mm. And on Twitter, I'm the John Stevens. And the only reason is because John Stevens was already taken. Yeah. And yeah. John E. Stevens was already taken. The good thing about unique names is that they're never taken. So I'm Zach Blunt on everything, mm-hmm. except for my personal Facebook that you just outed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, it's, not, so, it's not personal anymore. Well, okay. No, that's great because now I know I have I was Zach Blunt friends, but now Zach Blunt friends, but now I'm going to be ex Michael to the Izzo or whatever. It is. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'm going to find. Yeah, but it keeps it. telling me it's like, do you want to be friends with him? It's like I think I already am, but I'm not sure. So now I'm gonna, now I'm going to do it for sure. Yeah. So Zach, tell everybody a little bit about what you do. I know some people have, have heard of you before, but. You work here with Chapelwood. You work mm-hmm. with Iconoclast Artists. Tell folks a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so um, I am a writer, um, artist, more encompassing, right? I uh, write poems. I perform poems. Um, I do a little bit of videography. Um, I like to think of myself just as an all-around creative. Creative. Right? I love the word. That's like a great word. Yeah, yeah. I've been, and I've been doing it since I was like eight, That's right? Awesome. I always tell people my mom like was hard on me with my art from a young age to a point she made me cry. But she had to sit me down and be like, I, I'm this way because I see so much potential in you. And so like at eight years old, I started to see myself, oh, I'm an artist. Hmm. And I embodied that through, first it was drawing, and then I went into like music, and then I went into painting, and then I discovered spoken word and writing, so. That's awesome. And so if anybody pays attention to Chapwood on Sunday mornings and our worship communities or social media, They've heard your poetry, mm-hmm. and I think I think Jeff, one of the ones that really caught big attention was last summer. Um, the one, what will your children 
yeah say yeah that one the uh, legacy one the legacy one so if people didn't see it i would encourage them to go back on chapwood social media look back from last summer i think it was june july it was after the george floyd but it was just a really powerful and that you probably remember i mean what was yeah. kind of what what was coming in you in that moment i mean there's so much going on in the country yeah yeah because we were in quarantine right and mm. so like everybody had this time to just sit and process their own personal stuff going on inside of them right and on top of that we see um what's happening outside of our homes in a more pointed way because we're sitting in our homes and the only access point that we have outside of it is through the phone and that tends to like be the same for everybody hmm. right um and so what i saw first before i saw uh the death of george floyd was i saw Ahmaud Arbery. Arbery in brunswick georgia which was where i moved here from wow Wow, yeah. that's crazy. Um, yeah, I know that, that was neighborhood. I used to drive by it all the time. Super tragic. It was horrible. And, um, you know, I, I've been desensitized from it. And so I saw it. I absorbed it. Moved on with my day. Mm. Second thing I saw before George Floyd was a situation with, I, I don't remember his, his last name, but Christian something was a guy's name in New York, in Times Square, bird watching. And the white woman oh, yeah. the called dogs, the police. The dogs and, yeah, yeah. The police. And, um that that was that one really shook me because it showed me the power that privilege can afford you you know and um the grace that like someone can have hmm. throughout that whole situation if it was me i don't know if i would handle it like that um then i saw george floyd and all of this was was within the span of a week yeah it was within take 2 3 weeks together. yeah okay yeah yeah i think that's right yeah and um <clears throat> So yeah, I, I saw all that was span of two weeks probably, and it all came to a head for me, and not in a way because I, you know, I'm a writer, so I've written poems. I was angry about it. Probably two, 2016 for me was the peak of my rage, and mm. one of my friends sat me down. He asked me to read this book called Ismail, and it grounded me. It gave me perspective to see outside of myself to see how. We're all humans and we're all flawed in a lot of ways. So since that moment, I have a lot more grace with individuals. And so the bigger question to me, instead of raging out about what individuals are doing to other individuals, is to think about this as a system, right? As a more of a, a global thing, right? And particularly for people who are in positions of power and privilege, like, what is it that does not afford you to use your resources to help, right? And I, I think about how the people I know who have, in, in whatever situation it is, they, they kind of want to protect their legacy, hmm. whether that be in their art, whether that be with their children, whether that be in um, uh, a finance, financial way, right? We kind of want to protect our legacies. And so what better way to formulate a poem around what does it mean to be remembered through the things that we leave behind? And what is it that we leave behind? Our ideas, yeah. our um, ideologies, right? Our um, marks on the road, road world, and particularly through our offspring through our children right what are we teaching them what are we disseminating to them and i think over time those ideas have been a lot more progressive but i don't think we've we've come as far as we could come so i want to push on that a little bit through yeah. through that poem this is a great place to actually play I'll plug, it right here. plug it right here history shows us progress 
has always been met with resistance. These moments are no different. 20 years into the future, will you be proud of the words you said, the actions you took, the jokes you made, the silence you held, the morals you stood for, the stories you shared, the attention you stole from what mattered most, the light you shined on the agendas most important to you, the friends you had, the people who called you friend, the people you cut off, the people who cut you off, the people you praised or minimized, the lives you saved or endangered, the signs you made on behalf of black lives, the signs you made on behalf of all lives, the job you did or didn't do with integrity, the apathetic post, the naive optimism, the solutions you proposed, the empathy you did or didn't have, the time you spent in the comment section, the grace you gave to the rightfully outraged, the money you donated, the education you indulged or ignored, the rationale that kept you comfortable, the reasons you slept tight at night, the horrors that held your mind awake, the regrets you gifted yourself, the movements you bought into like a Black Friday, the excuses you sold like a clearance sale, the ideas you wrote into existence, the character you developed, the story and the way it arced, the consequences. The outcome. Will you be proud of how you handled it? Or will you think to yourself, I could have done better? Will history agree with you? Will your children's children agree with you? So, you know, one of the things I, I thought about today, Zach, is <laughs> somebody was saying, all right, Matt's going to be out of town, and Jeff's like, we're going to do the podcast, and do you want to talk about masking in schools? Do you want to talk about schools? Do you want to talk about vaccines? Do you want to talk about Delta variants? And I'm like, no! I don't want to talk about any of this. No, no, no. None of this. Do you want to talk about the partisan governmental influence? I'm not, no, I don't want to talk about any of that. And even my wife was like, well, shouldn't we get the, uh, the guy who's on the school board and come and talk about the school board? And I was like, no, not only do I not want to do it, he really doesn't want to do it. <laughs> I think it's actually um, unfortunate. You know, it's, um, somebody um, sent me something today that a friend had sent them, and they refer to Chapelwood as Chapel Woke. Now, I'm, see, I'm here for now it. Now you celebrate. I'm here for now you it. You celebrate, but they don't. They don't mean it as a compliment. I got you. Right? I they got do you. not mean it as a compliment. It's there's this thing going on in society that's just. Um, I think it's rooted in grief. Mm. People feel like they're losing uh, the kind of whatever they feel like they're losing. As Rudy Rasmus said on our podcast a couple of years ago, you know, 400 years of unchecked privilege is really kind of hard to let go of, or hard yeah. to even have a conversation about. Yeah. And what I tell people all the time is, let's, as Christians, let's find, just find some empathy. Mm -hmm. Let's just listen and understand that situations are way more complex than we sometimes make them out to be. Yes, yes. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everyone that you talk to. 
but you can have a dialogue and conversation. But I feel like there's a culture war going on. So one of the things that we're going to do at Chapelwood over actually the next couple of months is um, this roadmap um, of resilience or roadmap to resilience. Because I think, you know, when we were planning the fall, we were thinking, okay, we've come through all the pandemic. Uh, we're done with it now. The fall's going to be wide open. Everything's going to be brand new. And it's like glorious. Ah, yeah. You know, it's all yeah. over. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got this Delta variant and you've got a lot of unvaccinated people in the hospital and it's just rising up again. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's so discouraging and it's, it, people are in despair. Uh, there's actually a great um, four minute um, interview with the head nurse from Houston Methodist. Jeff, I'm going to send it to you. Maybe we can edit it in here at this spot or not. I don't know in the podcast, but just to hear her lament. But I, here's the deal. I, do, I don't want to focus on, the, on, on that. What I want to focus on is how do we make it through this? People ask me all the time. It's like, okay, 18 months, you've been through this process of pandemic and racial, you know, disruption and political division. And it's just over and over. And we have, you know, the January the 6th and the, the, the thing that happened at the Capitol. And it's just like, man, it just, just doesn't seem. And then you think you're coming out of it and then you're right back in the middle of mm -hmm. it. And where do you find the resilience? And a book that's been really important to me is a book by a former professor of mine, Barbara Brown Taylor, called An Altar in the World. She's actually a great writer, has a poetic spirit and soul. I took a class with her at Columbia Theological Seminary, and one of the things we, we, we did different activities. One of the things we did is we modeled with clay as we prayed. It's a very creative, mm, that like, is cool. tactile, you know, yeah. you know, with your hands as you're praying and you're using the clay. But she um, she has this way of writing in this first uh, chapter of her book, An Altar in the World, which is all about how do we engage in, well, the whole book is about spiritual practices that are rooted in the ordinary and okay. just life, substance, um, not ethereal, overly spiritual things, mm -hmm. which is like what's right in front of you. Yeah. And the reason that I wanted you to come today is because I think as a creative, it's like, how do you find inspiration in the things that are just like right in front of you? Yeah. Ordinary things, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be um, some super sacred thing. So the scripture this week we're going to use is the story from Genesis chapter 28. And the story is that Joseph, uh, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Jacob stole Esau's blessing and his birthright, and Esau was going to kill him. So Jacob fled to the far country, and he comes to this certain place. He's running. He's all alone. He's all by himself, and when he gets there, he's so exhausted that he finds a rock, puts his head on the rock like a pillow, and he goes to sleep out in the middle of nowhere wilderness, and while he's asleep, he has a dream, and in the dream, God says that I'm going to bless you and you're going to spread all over the earth to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. The families of the earth, all your families will be blessed. All your offspring will be blessed. I'm with you wherever you go. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'll never leave you. And I'm thinking, well, first off, he doesn't deserve this at all, which none of us deserve that kind of blessing from God, but he gets it. But what's really interesting is then when he wakes up from his sleep, scripture says, uh, he wakes up and he says, wow, surely the Lord 
is in this place and I didn't even know it. Mm. And he says, how awesome is this place? There's no place like this. This place, he names it in the Hebrew, Beth El, which literally means this is the house of God. He's out in the middle of nowhere, sleeping on a rock. Mm -hmm. And so he builds this little altar of rocks, the rock he slept on and all these other rocks. He builds this little altar. And, the, and it was, it was uh, symbolic of this is the place where God was present in this moment. And I think, wow, when you think about waking up to the presence of God in your life, we always think about God's got to be present in church, mm-hmm. in Bible study, yeah. you know, in worship. a religious program, in worship or whatever, these places we draw these lines. Mm-hmm. But what, what this scripture says is, man, there, there's this way of cultivating an attentiveness to where the presence of God can be like everywhere, anywhere, at any time, and in everyone. Yeah. But do we see it? I don't think we see it. And I want to go back to something that you said in the scripture when God was speaking to him in his dream. And you said, we don't deserve that type of grace. And I'd argue that like we do, like we're made in God's image, right? Mm -hmm. And Therefore, if God can afford us that type of grace, we can surely afford each other that type of grace. Hmm. And oftentimes we don't give each other that type of grace. And oftentimes I think that leads to us not feeling the presence of God in ordinary places. Hmm. I always have this idea of like kindness versus niceness. And one might say kindness is more important, right? Um, And I think kindness is super important, but I think it's such such an important thing to afford each other just a pleasantry, right? Just a niceness, right? Because I don't know what you're going through. You can come into this room with all the stuff that you've carried throughout the day, throughout the year, and I don't know if the next bad interaction is a cracking point for you, Hmm. right? So why not provide you the small grace of kindness? Like, I think God gifts us. Hmm. And so, like, that's my interpretation of that, right? I think Every space that we, we walk in, every person we encounter has a spirit of God. Yeah. And just like being in the wilderness by yourself, the spirit's there, right? When we're with others, the spirit's there too. We just got to tap into it. I think you're right. A lot of people aren't seeing it. Yeah. So Barbara Brown Taylor writes about this and she's, she's, it, it's fascinating some of this stuff. She says that what we need more than ever is this sense of wisdom, mm. but that it's not she said, wisdom is not gained by knowing what is right. Wisdom is gained mm. by practicing what is right and noticing mm. what happens when that practice succeeds and when it fails. Mm. And so wisdom is not, you know, I, I think, I think Christians in our modern culture, and I, I preached this last week, it's about what we, we know. And what we find out in like, even in the book of, of Ephesians, where Paul writes six chapters. And the first half of the book, the first three are all about theology, but the the last three are all about how you live your life. How do you live into that? Yeah. And sometimes we think that Christianity is all about a a set of beliefs or propositions that we have to adhere to or believe for rules. And actually it's really about the way we live our life. It's about the way we walk. I mean, he, he uses that, um, the Greek word, and I can't remember it all the time, but it's, that, it's actually about the way that you walk your life. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that which you've been called. Mm. And so it's like all the grace that you've been given by God, which is heavy, 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 heavy. Yes. Your yes, walk yes. has to be equal to that on the scale. Mm-hmm. And it's not for most of it's us. Not, not even not. close. Yeah. 
Um, I got a I got an email today from someone else. It's just like, you know, they just say things about me or about chapel or whatever. It's just not true. And I know these people are Christian. And so the person who sent it to me, I say, hey, you know, I see this all the time. I, it, I get it or whatever. I said, but here's what I'd like for you to respond back to them. Say, hey, first off, if you're Christian, just know this, that um, you're accusing a church or a pastor or whatever of something that's not true. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul makes clear that slander is a sin. Mm. When you slander against someone, when you say something that's not true. So if this is really as a Christian who seeks to follow the word of God, they should repent and not share. And anyone that they've shared that with, they should respond back to them and say, hey, what I share with you is not true. Mm. And they should repent and apologize to the people that they've offended. I'm going to hold my breath now and wait, (laughs) wait. I'm gonna hold my breath now and wait wait for the apology to show up. Oh it one of the things that, that she says too in her book is that um I'd like to hear what you think about this. She says that when she grew up in the church, and so she grew up learning that all the truth was found in the Bible, which you know we 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 believe that. But what she says is that she learned um, that the Bible actually gives us another way of approaching God, a way that trusts union of spirit and flesh as much as it trusts the world, um, and, and that you can encounter God in the real world, in the daily existence. And so what she says is the people who wrote the Bible believed that God was present, that you could encounter God under oak trees, on riverbanks, mm. on tops of mountains, in mm. long stretches of barren wilderness, that God would show up in whirlwinds and starry skies and burning bushes and imperfect strangers. And if you want to know more about God, God tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field, the birds of the air, women kneading bread and workers lining up for their pay. And she says, whoever wrote this stuff believed that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying constant attention to the scripture. That may offend some people's sensibilities, but it is scriptural. I, I 100% believe that in my bones. I have not read the Bible from front to back. I don't. That's okay. Most people have. <laughs> <laughs> but I know a lot about the world from exactly what you're saying. Walking into it and keeping my finger on the gauge. Mm-hmm. What is going right? What is going wrong? What what does this make me feel, right? What does the people feel around me in the room, right? Um, is this leaning into goodness? Like, and to my art, to all the things that I do creatively, I think my purpose is to create space for people to lean into their goodness, right? That's how I describe what I'm put on this earth to do. Mm-hmm. And whenever I'm in a space, because I've been in spaces, I've reacted the wrong way, plenty of times and I didn't create space for people to lean into their goodness. And ultimately that was not a good feeling. And I only know that from observing the space around me. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you can do it when you, I like to go into nature. There's a park. It's huge from where I live and I go deep into it sometimes. And when you get out there, you see the birds move away. Sometimes if you're too loud, right? Mm. You see uh, the animals, the squirrels run away if you're too erratic. You're intruding on the sacred space. You're intruding into the space. Yeah. You're disturbing it. And if you're, you know, attuned, you can notice those things. 
If you come into so next time, right? You come into it with a more gentle spirit, a more calm presence, right? Then you can watch them stay. Or sometimes, as one who uh, spent some time hunting in my life, is you have to go into this environment. You have to find your spot, whether it's in a tree stand or whatever, mm-hmm. and you have to sit and you have to be still and you have to wait. You almost have to let creation uh, regather around you. Yeah. Because So there's a sense where you have to stop and pause. People who hunt, and I know this coming from South Georgia and Texas, <laughs> there's a lot of real spiritual people who say, hey, I, I, I commune with God when I'm in a tree stand, right? Or I'm in, I'm in a blind. And I... Don't disagree with that at all. I've been there. I've experienced that. But what I find is they know as well as I do. Now, once you get into the space, you've disrupted the space. So what you have to do is you have to go and reset. There's a resetting. So this series we're going through is about remembering, resetting, and replying. There's a place you've got to reset, which means you have to get up in that. You might sit there for three or four hours. That's a practice. That's a stillness. Stillness and silence. Waiting for nature to kind of repopulate into what they feel is not an intruded space. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't know. I think there's something. I'd, I'd be interested in hearing from you, I mean, as um, you know, as someone who's creative, who writes poetry and deals with that. When you go, when, like one of the things we do here is we may say to you and Jeff and the team may go, all right, here's, here's kind of the sermon series. Here's some scriptures. Here's some stories. Here's some thoughts. And they put that out to you and, Kind of what's the process that you go through to find a sense of sacredness to this process? I mean, how do you do it? I mean, I'm sure everybody does it different, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't do poetry, so I don't know this, <laughs> write sermons, but I think it's a little different. Because I mean, a, a poem, one of the things about sermons tend to be, we want them to be deductive and inductive. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to give people a prescription. Mm-hmm. Poetry has always struck me as like, it's not going to be so much prescriptive or deductive, it's like invite you into a space where you can, it's, it's more inductive mm-hmm. or descriptive. Okay. Yeah. It, that's been my yeah. experience. I may be wrong. I'm not the expert here. Um, yeah. So that's, that's actually exactly right. Uh, it's not prescriptive. We call it descriptive, like you said, um, which means that we're not here to prescribe you information, nor um, is it that you should prescribe meaning to what it is that I'm trying to do. But I'm going to describe what I see. I'm going to describe the situation for you. And it's your job to take what I describe and see it and describe it and give meaning to it for yourself, right? And that's not pres- making that's not saying it's the remedy, but it's saying look at it and what does it make you feel? How can you interrogate yourself further? And so with that, like let's say we're collaborating on something. So you have this scripture or this idea and you want me to disseminate it into a poem, right? So uh, I'm going to take that text, right, or that idea. I'm going to didact what I find meaning out of from mm-hmm. it, right? So the story that you just uh, read about um, Jacob being in the wilderness, yeah, yeah. for example, right? Some things that come to mind is the sky, like going to bed at night. Yeah, in the he's under the sky. In the You're under this, yeah. the sky of lights, right? Of, of stars, right? Yeah. I see that. I see an altar of rocks, right? These are things that I contextualize in my mind, right? Yeah. This is just the, the setting I'm describing. It's yeah. descriptive, yeah. right? And so I'll take those points of imagery, right? I, then I will... Um, what, is, what does that make me feel, right? What meaning uh, can I extract from these things for myself, right? Uh, from that, I'm building a story. I'm building a narrative, right? For me, the skies, um, 
the sky at night, it's lights, right? I, I find that be, to be beautiful. I find that to be very spiritual for me, right? So I always have touchstones and imagery alluding to the sky, right? And particularly through what I find spirituality from, right? And I like to be grounded, right? I think rocks are a great representation of that. Yeah, yeah. So from this scripture, I will probably build a poem debating that dichotomy of like, what does it mean to be spiritual and grounded at the same time? And just thinking, again, spitballing from this idea of the scripture, the in-between there is the dream and mm. where the groundedness and the spirituality meets, right? So for me, I probably build a poem surrounding those three things. Those are the three touchstones, and then I make meaning out of that. So you know what's interesting in this passage of scripture? When he dreams, he sees a ladder mm. or a staircase, and the scripture says he sees, um, oh, hold on, how does it say it specifically? It says that he sees um, the angels of God ascending mm. and descending. What's interesting about that is the order of the words. Mm. Now, you think if you see the angels of God, where are they coming from? The sky, but he says you would ascending. Think, but he says first ascending and descending. So what that does is almost kind of speaks to the sacredness of the rock, of yeah. the ground, of the earth. Yeah. So you're talking about the kind of the, 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 the sky and the, and the ordinary of the works. It's like God's going to invert that for you before you even get started. Yeah. It's like, cause you can like, like play on that, twist on that in yeah. some ways. It's like God's already in the ordinary. God's already down at the rock. Mm -hmm. God's already on the earth, yeah. even though the divine... And that's what they, I think that um, she does a good that's job a good, talking a good about sacred and secular. Mm. And there was a poem by Wendell Berry. Um, it's part of a poem from How to Be a Poet. So this would be right up your alley. And this is what he says, because I love the last three lines of this when we talk about sacred places. He said, breathe with unconditional breath, the unconditioned air shun electric wire, mm. communicate slowly, live a three-dimensioned life, stray away from screens, stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Come on. And so what he goes on, he says, a desecrated place is a thing, is, is a place or a thing, is to violate that place or thing, to treat it with violent disrespect. It is a sacred, everything is sacred, every person is sacred. So it's not that it's secular or not sacred, yeah. it's desecrated, yeah. which means is when you take a sacred thing and you treat it violently or with violent disrespect. That's desecrating something to divest that thing of its sacredness, of its mm -hmm. hallowed character, mm -hmm. because everything has a sacred character. The rock, the dirt. Here's what I ask to that. Can something desecrated be restored? Oh, yeah, I believe so. I think, I think so that's too. the centrality of the Christian message. Yeah. Everything can be redeemed. Yeah. Because what's, what's happening is... When you say it's desecrated, that is a person desecrating it. It doesn't change the nature of the character of the thing. The thing is still sacred in God's eyes. Gotcha. It's always sacred in God's okay. eyes, but it's desecrated to us, mm. which means we discount it as being sacred. And that's the thing I think for this whole like series to me is struggling with this whole concept of what is 
sacred and secular. I don't think it's so much that. It's like everything is sacred. What are you desecrating? Yeah. Or what, what has been desecrated in our society and how can you not see it as such? Right. How can you how learn? Can you the whole how can you learn to see things that society has desecrated, mm-hmm. or people, or groups have desecrated, and say they haven't lost their sacred nature? Yeah, I can learn to see that again. Exactly. It's just going to take some vision on my part. I've got to wake up to God. Yeah, I like that. And that's what I think Jacob God. does. You know, when he's sleeping under the heavens. I mean, he wakes up. He's sleeping on a rock. I mean, I don't think that's too comfortable. <laughs> I don't think it's too comfortable. <laughs> And he wakes up and he goes, and, and if you listen, listen to the, how astounded he is, he's like, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? Mm. This is none other than the house of God right here in this place. It was an ordinary, out of the way, middle of nothing, desert, empty wilderness that he's running from his brother who's going to kill him because he's a cheat and a scoundrel and a whatever else. And like, What is the other side of that that story um because i'm not familiar 100 with it like does he return the stuff what happens so jacob goes on he becomes um he falls in love as, as all good stories do he falls in love <laughs> he falls in love he gets married he has lots of kids and his 12 children are the 12 tribes of israel ah, gotcha. his name jacob becomes israel ah. and his children are the 12 tribes of Israel. One of his sons is Joseph, coat of many colors. One of his sons is Judah. Okay. Line of the tribe of Judah. And so, yeah, he becomes, he's the descendant of Abraham and Isaac. The promise of my, uh, you know, I will bless you and your descendants will be like stars in the heaven. So when he Ah. sleeps under the stars in the heaven. But he, he's, um, he's interesting because he's a twin. And when the scripture says when he's born, he's named Jacob. Um, and his name literally means it's a play on words. He's a heel grabber. So he's born second. Esau is strong and ruddy and redhead and he's a hunter and he's masculine, masculine. And Jacob's more of a, you know, stay at home kind of guy, you know, kind, gentle, that's kind of stuff. But yeah. he's grabbing onto the heel of Esau. But the word also heel grabber, it also means a deceiver. Ooh. He's a deceiver. And so as the second born, his mother loves him more. His father loves Esau more. And so um, Esau is all about like his own stuff. And so one day he comes in hungry from hunting and he's hungry. And he's like, give me some of that soup you made. And Jacob said, well, if you give me your birthright, you know, I'll give you some soup. He's like, fine, whatever. I don't care. He doesn't care about his birthright, but Jacob does. Mm. And then at the end of his life, his mother helps him to conspire to get the blessing from his father. His father's old and blind and he's going to bestow the blessing on the firstborn. Wow. And so Esau goes hunting to fix some stew for his father that he likes. And his mother and Jacob put, because he was very hairy, so they put sheepskin on his arm, they dress him up, his father can't see him. And he comes in and he goes, is that you Esau? And he goes, yes, it's me. He goes, it doesn't sound like you, it's me. He touches him, he's like, oh, okay, whatever. And he gives him the blessing of the firstborn. And that's how he becomes the one who carries on the lineage. Wow. And then when Esau comes back, he says to his father, he's like, I've already given the blessing to your brother. He, he deceived me. And Esau is enraged. He says, give me a blessing, give me a blessing, give me a blessing. But the blessing he gives him is not the blessing of the firstborn. It's kind of pathetic. It's sad. And he's like, okay, I'm going to find him. I'm going to kill him. 
And then you get this. He's running away. Now, ultimately, they reconcile. But okay. It, but it takes some time. Sure. Jacob has As to things run. things does. Yeah. But you know what I love about this? One of the things we talk about is that uh, in, in the notes this week that I'm working on is like Jacob is a person who emerges from the biblical narrative as perhaps more like any of us than any other picted, any other person depicted in scripture other than maybe Simon Peter. I mm. mean, he's, I mean, if, you, if I just told you a story, yeah, he's not the most noble, perfect person, like anywhere close, yeah. right? Which he kind of reminds me of me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of Jeff. <laughs> I mean, kind of reminds me of a lot of people I know, but you know, God doesn't work through perfect people. God works through people who are willing. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I and I, I think the the key today that just to be encouraging to people is like that. There's to me, there's a sense when I thought of you to you know when we were talking about this, it's like finding the sacred in all things is also to me deeply connected in that creative birthing process because you got to find beauty in like stuff like you got to find like i think about that that poem um you know what will your children's children say you got to find you got to find beauty and hope in something that has doesn't seem to have a lot of beauty and hope in it yeah that's finding sacred in something where it's that that seems to be desecrated yeah it's a lot of empathy in that a lot of work and empathy to have it in, in people and through my through my process too you know I think, I think like I can draw inspiration from a lot of things and I can write about a lot of things. I think a lot of poets um, tend to write about a lot of non-hopeful things. I do keep hope and uplifting messages in my writing most of the time. Um, and that takes deep work. That takes deep work that I think a lot of people aren't doing in the world. You know, um, hmm. I think that makes it special for me and make, sets me apart really, you know. No, it does. I mean, every poem I've ever heard that you've done, it, it, there's, there's an inspirational aspect. I mean, I'm sure you've done things that are more lamenting or sad, yeah. but there's always, everything you do kind of turns me to some sense of, of hopefulness and thinking about. I used to not do very hopeful poems, right? They used to all be be bad or and i still write those poems i just don't share them anymore the dark ones you know i, I have to get it out Zach but Blunt, I just the dark collection <laughs> maybe that's a book i write <laughs> and i think there's a place for that right i think there's definitely a place for those poems to exist for people um because those stories need to be heard and people need to know they're not alone in those types of feelings but yeah. we can't live there, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I want people to know. Always. I think it's definitely a, 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 there's a voice, a Christian voice for lament. It's in the Psalms. Yeah. It's, it's a real Christian language that we need to recapture and use and claim as our own and not be ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. But e even every lament poem has this turn. So every lament psalm will say, why, oh, why, where are you, O oh Lord? How long must I suffer? They start that way. Mm. But they always have a turn. There's always an inflection point where it turns where they say, yet will I trust in you. Yet will my eye turn to you. Yeah. So even it. in their darkness, they say, it's not a feeling, volitionally. I make a decision mm -hmm. to trust in you, even yeah. though everything around me doesn't seem to, point in that direction yeah i hear that and i think with as a poet when you what you can help people do is you can name the pain that's the lament part 
yet will I trust is that move you make always. How will I find something to make a decision in my mind, a volitional decision to say, yet I will hope, yet I will trust, yeah. yet I will look to something better for the future. Yeah, that's a, I believe that is a space where we can create goodness. I believe that is the space for people who can look up, you know? Um, and that's what I try to do. I wanted to go back to that excerpt of the poem real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, the Wendell Berry poem? Yeah. Yeah, the, um, here. Oh, and let the poet dissect the poem. To communicate slowly, live a three-dimensional life. I have a line in a poem that says, um, we think a solution is as simple as a sign. We think... Um, we think a solution is as simple as a sign. We think hope can be created in a post. We forget this world is not limited to two dimensions. We forget this world is deeper than two dimensions. We forget this world is not limited to 4K resolution. And like, he goes on to say in this, um, there is no, uh, where is he here? Stay away from Stay screens. away from screens. Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. And I think when we all are focusing through the phones and not focusing on what's around us, it obscures our vision. It obscures the places that we exist in. And it creates this flatness yeah. to, to just make everything that we see through our phone onto Jeff, onto you, right? And that's not who you are. You're more than that. Like We're, we're not two-dimensional people. We're three-dimensional people, right? We're probably even more than that. We're very complex, multifaceted individuals and can hold conflicting ideas in our heads together. Yeah, no doubt. So the thing I'll end with is this, unless there's something else you want to talk about, Jeff. But um, we went to Disney World like two weeks ago. And we rode this like the, these couple of new rides they have there that I had not ridden before. One was called like Rise of the Resistance, and it's like totally immersive, like in the Star Wars world. I mean, mm. it's crazy, like mind blowing stuff. And I'm riding in this little car, and me and my family are just like experiencing it. And the whole family in front of us, all they're doing is they're holding their thumbs up like this. That's got their phones up the whole time, like right in front of their eyes. And I'm like, it's the first time you've ridden this ride. Because you can only ride it once a day. You have to register. Like, it's not wow. even standing in the line queue this kind of thing. Crazy. So it's like, it's hard to even get in. Most people can't even get in the queue to ride it. And so they're riding this ride, and they got the phones like this far from their head. And I'm like, there's so much going on on this thing that to appreciate and to see, like, little nuances that they've carefully crafted here, but you miss it. Yeah. So when you talk about desecrating something, it's like you've lessened the experience for yourself and you didn't even realize that you were. Also, you could keep, you know, a, a four by six little image <laughs> of this thing. Heck, you can go on YouTube and watch the ride. Exactly. It's on YouTube. Somebody's done a way better job video in this ride than you will on your phone. Just like, just be there. That's, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. All right, I've gone from preaching to meddling now, I guess. <laughs> Zach, thanks for being with me today and, you know, filling the seat. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, John. Love you, brother, and all that you have to offer. Jeff, thanks. Anything else? We're good? All right. Well, I'm John Stevens. I'm Zach Blunt. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Bang.